0: Former President Donald Trump is officially a target in special counsel's investigation into the January 6th insurrection. This is the second time that the special counsel has notified the former president that he is likely to face indictment. This time in connection with the criminal investigation into the events leading up to the Capitol attack. Trump calls the letter a targeted witch hunt. And in more Trump legal news, The Georgia Supreme Court rejects Donald Trump's effort to quash the investigation of the Fulton County District Attorney Bonnie Willis. With uh, indictment decisions imminent, the Supreme Court of Georgia refused to scuttle an investigation into whether the former president and his allies interfered in the 2020 election. Well, the world swelters in record breaking heat. Much of the northern hemisphere is experiencing wiltering high temperatures, which scientists warn are increasingly likely and that this hot weather will continue at least through the weekend. An increasingly deep dive among Democrats in Congress about how strongly or even whether to support Israel has reared its head on the eve of a visit by the nation's president to Washington. As progressives openly condemn the Jewish state and others toil to reconcile their backing for the country with disdain for its current government. The rift burst into public view over the weekend when Representative Jayapal of Washington Democrat, who leads the Congressional Progressive Caucus, said at a conference of the liberals uh, that Israel is a quote, race state, quote, leading to a swift condemnation from House Democratic leaders that prompted her to walk back the comment. Former South African President Nelson Mandela goes from hero to scapegoat as South Africa struggles. Mr. Mandela's image, which the ANC has plastered across the country, has for some shifted from that of hero to scapegoat. Ten years after his death, attitudes have changed. The party Mr. Mandela led after his release from prison, the African National Congress, is in serious danger of losing its outright majority for the first time since he became president in 1994 in the first free election after the fall of apartheid. Corruption and aptitude and elitism have tarnished the ANC, according to some <clears throat> experts. On Friday, Iowa's Republican governor signed a strict new abortion ban into law. And for three days, most abortions in Iowa were illegal past six weeks of pregnancy until Monday afternoon, when a district court judge in Polk County said that the new ban would be suspended while the larger legal case against it moved forward. Carrie Kennedy, a sister of Democratic presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr., lambasted her brother in a brief statement yesterday after a report quoted him as saying that COVID-19 was targeted to attack Caucasians and black people, and that Jewish people are most immune. Well, the Michigan attorney general announced felony charges this afternoon against 16 people in a case involving Trump supporters' attempt to overturn the 2020 election results in the state by convening a false slate of electoral college electors. Each of the 16 defendants has been charged, and one is a former head of the Michigan Republican Party, with eight felony counts, including forgery and conspiracy to commit forgery for allegedly signing documents attesting falsely that they were Michigan's duly elected and qualified electors for president and vice president. You are listening and watching Ariba Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariba Martin. This is your one stop destination for today's trending news, expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. In this hour, two of my regular superstar contributors are joining me Dr. Raphael Sonenshine, who fondly goes by Rafe. He's the executive director of the John Randolph Haynes and Dora Haynes Foundation. And Dr. Omikanga Dabinga is back. He's a senior lecturer at American University and the author of a new book, The Lies They Tell Black People. And in hour two, today we're going deep on the stories that everyone is talking about. And today that story is about who really benefited from slavery and free slave labor. Now this is in the United States. You know, we all know and Often hear about and see in movies the depiction of white slave and plantation owners in the South. And some people erroneously believe that they were the only beneficiaries from the U.S. Uh, chattel slavery market. But my guests in today's second hour have both written books and articles and conducted extensive research on who are the real beneficiaries of slavery. And their findings will shock you and may make you lose your religion. So make sure you stick around for hour two. But before I bring on my guest, here's what I'm thinking in real time. Democrats, bravo to you, because you are putting your money to good use and investing in Black voters. Yes, a top ally of the Congressional Black Caucus is launching a new super PAC that will spend tens of millions of dollars to mobilize Black voters and try to flip the House majority for Democrats. The goal is to elect the first Black Speaker of the House. Nakara Campbell-Wallace, she's the Congressional Black Caucus's PAC's former political director. She's going to serve as the executive director of this new organization called Rolling Sea Action Fund, Now, this organization will be aligned, but not directly affiliated with the all-Democratic Congressional Black Caucus. The group will be organized as a hybrid PAC. Now, this designation will allow Rolling C to both raise money for candidates and have a separate account raising unlimited sums to spend on ads and other election spending. Now, if this pact is successful, if it is successful in mobilizing Black voters, particularly in some of those difficult uh, congressional districts, districts that went for Republicans in the last midterms, but have the potential of being Democrat uh, or of having Democrats elected and they are able to flip the House, then House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, a Democrat from New York and a former member of Congressional Black the Congressional Black Caucus's leadership, Hakeem Jeffries would become the country's first black speaker of the house. This is so important and so incredible and we always talk about where Democrats, what are they doing? Or are they organizing? You know, what are they doing to mobilize voters? And so I'm always encouraged when I see actions such as this, the forming of a political pact to raise money because, yes, races cost a lot of money and you can't win seats uh, in the U.S. Congress in this country without having a targeted plan, without having a ground game and without raising a lot of money. And oftentimes the candidate, him or herself, isn't able to raise sufficient funds and they need support. From outside entities like this pack to help it to run ads they can this a pack like this can run ads against uh, opponents in certain races. they can run ads that uh, tout the uh, pot- potential candidates' record. they can run ads about just how great the Democratic uh, party has done what the Democratic administration under Biden and Harris uh, has done and they could be that critical link. Uh, to provide resources to candidates that may otherwise struggle. Now, this group says it is confident that it will raise and then spend more than $10 million on a multi-pronged strategy in the 2024 election. They're going to spend this money on in-person organizing, so important, engaging key communities. They're going to target those districts that have over 8% Black voting age population and again, the most competitive seats in the House. Now, given that Black voters are the cornerstone, continue to be, have been, is the cornerstone of the Democratic Party, and I would say the protector. Yes, we are the protector of our democracy. This is clearly money well spent. So bravo to the new Pack Rolling C Action Fund. Bravo to Nakara Campbell-Wallace, uh, and the Congressional Black Caucus for having the foresight to raise money and to invest in Black voter turnout in those key congressional races. I think we can do it. I think we can flip the House. And I think we can make Hakeem Jeffries the first African-American Speaker of the House. When we come forward, more on today's breaking news with my expert contributors right here on KBLA Talk 15 we are back and we are tracking today's breaking and trending news. And it has been a day full of breaking news. And I'm so glad I have my regular superstar contributors, Dr. Raphael Sunshine and Dr. Omikongo Dabinga joining me in this hour to help us make sense of this news. Uh, Rafe, I think it was as early as seven or eight o'clock this morning when I started getting alarms about this target letter Uh, to Donald Trump. I think he posted about it first, and then it was confirmed that, yes, indeed, he has received a target letter from the special counsel that has been investigating the January 6th insurrection and the events leading up to the insurrection, including the attempts by Trump and allies to overturn the legitimate election of Joe Biden as president. Here we are talking about a 2024 election and still dealing with the fallout of the 2020 election, but uh, what do you make of this news that we knew was coming, but today is the day where Donald Trump uh, has been warned that he is likely to be indicted yet again uh, on federal charges?
1: This is the fundamental charge. This is about America's democracy. Uh, There's huge other charges going on around the country, including the security documents and things like that that's about the security of the country. This is about the security of our democracy. It's been long, long overdue. It's taken a very long time, but this is the way the system works very slowly. But it has got to have him and his allies in Congress have to be particularly worried because it took a lot of people to almost pull off this coup on January 6th. This was not a one-man operation. So the big question to me is not who's the target, but who else is going to be uh, brought to account. That is an e- maybe an even bigger deal.
0: Yes, uh, just because Trump has received a target letter, and this is a letter that the Department of Justice sends to individuals that are mm-hmm. likely to be indicted. It gives you an opportunity to come in, talk to the uh, prosecuting attorneys, to tell them your side of the story, to see if you have something that might be exculpatory or something that might uh, you know, exonerate you or in some way cause the, uh, indictment not to move forward. Now we know Donald Trump, uh, Dr. Dominguez is not going to show up. Uh, he's going to just, you know, stay in his little, uh, cubby hole and post on his social media site and make attacks against the special counsel, make attacks against our law enforcement agencies, our judicial system, and just attack, attack, attack. We don't know what charges he might be indicted on. Although, uh, Experts are opining that it might be something like obstruction of an official proceeding and conspiracy to defraud the government. Now, we know that Jerry Kushner was called into the uh, special counsel's uh, office and gave testimony, and one of the questions has to do with what Trump knew during the time that he was engaged in his conduct, uh, what he believed, what his intentions were, and did he really believe he had won the election. I think I saw something where Jared Kushner had testified that he said Donald Trump really thought he won the election. What do you make of that? I think you're on mute, Dr. have
2: There have definitely been several instances where there have been other people, General Milley, some of his other staff members who have definitely said that he was aware that he lost the election. One aide talked about walking into his office and he said, can you believe that I lost to this effing guy? Uh, Millie was in conversation with him about some potential war plans and, and Trump said something to the effect of, you know, let's let the next guy handle it. And so there have been several instances that have proven that Trump was fully aware that he lost the election. So that's number one. And number two, you know, as Rafa was talking about, you know, it's, it's long overdue. We can all agree on that. But let's also be mindful of the fact that, as I believe the New York Times or USA Today reported a few weeks ago, the the Justice Department didn't even look at this for about 14 months after January 6th. Like they dragged their feet over over a year. And I believe it was probably the testimony of Cassidy Hutchinson during the January 6th uh, committee hearings that, from what I hear, really rattled people at the Justice Department. And that's when they started doing the work. They were going after lower level people beforehand. When will Merrick Garland realize that this kind of hands off approach because you don't want to seem political? It is political. So, you know, we're glad that they finally arrived, but it should have happened this time last year or six months ago. And we know that Trump is going to drag this out to try to hopefully get into office or or use the election as an excuse. But shame on the Justice Department for not doing its job from the beginning. Uh, But I am thankful that the January 6th commission lit the fire under their behinds.
0: I am so glad you said that. I have been saying from day one that Joe Biden made some phenomenal choices uh, when he named his cabinet. And he made what I believe are two Really poor choices. And one was Merrick Garland to be the U.S. Attorney General. Judge, possibly, maybe, yes, no problem with him being appointed mm-hmm. to the appellate court for, you know, in that D.C. appellate court or even for the Supreme Court. But he does not have the the what I'll call the the chops or the heart of a prosecutor. He seems yeah. so fearful, so timid, as you said, so afraid to appear, quote unquote, political by definition. Donald Trump is a politician. So That's anything right. you do to Donald Trump, indict him or not indict him, is going to be seen as political by some group of people. And you are not going to ever be able to demonstrate to those hardcore <clears throat> Trump supporters that anything the Department of Justice does, the FBI, or any agency does as it relates to holding Trump accountable, they will never believe it's objective, it's fair because fundamentally they believe Trump is above the law and that he uh, enjoys privileges and rights that no one else in this country enjoy so That's this right. this notion of hands off only now gets us in this i think it's even worse because now folks are going to say you're piling on because it looks like rape this dude is is going to be indicted by the special counsel, and this is just on. I mean, there's so many potentials here. The fake electors, right? So engaging in this process, which, you know, is uh, uh, obstructing an official proceeding, uh, moving forward with these fraudulent uh, electors. But then remember all the money that he raised on this lie? So you have the potential for mail fraud. Uh, you have the potential for, you know, other kind of fraudulent <laughs> charges related to raising money. Uh, and you also obviously something is about to happen in Georgia at the beginning of August, the end of July. Politically, how is it that Republicans can continue to be the law and order party, uh, party pretend to be the law and order party and support Donald Trump who's now likely in the next week will be thrice indicted <laughs> and two times impeached.
1: Oh, I I still think he's the likely nominee uh for president of the uh on the Republican ticket. I think the Republicans can't live with him and they can't live without him. Uh they're in a the very anomalous position. Um, I still don't see anybody taking the nomination away from him. Can I put in a good word for Merrick Garland, which I think is largely undeserved Because <laughs> I had the same feeling. His appointment of Jack Smith as the special counsel, when I first heard it, I thought my heart just sank. It was mm-hmm. like, oh God, we're just going to like throw this football off and nothing is going to happen. This guy is unbelievable. Sure. And if they had put, if they had picked him like two years ago, We'd be two years ahead. And also a good word, as Dr. Debinga pointed out, let's say a good word about Congress, for God's sake, who we all <laughs> yeah, enjoy yes. running down. Not since the Senate Watergate hearings has there been a set of hearings that so shook up the justice system that was doing nothing
2: mm-hmm.
1: that they had to take action. Because in this country, Congress can't do it by themselves. All they can do is light a fire under the Justice Department. And they did. They ran some of the best hearings ever. So now we can go back to making fun of Congress. But I mean I just no, 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 that- you're
0: right. That's a great point, Rafe. I- I'm <laughs> writing down Benny Thompson. I'm thinking about Liz Cheney. I'm thinking mm-hmm. about some of those uh superstars of that uh those hearings. I mean, it was so well done, uh, laid out in, in clear terms with graphics, great testimony that they were able to take from the depositions that have been taken. And again, the the Republicans have to be kicking themselves for being so obstinate that they wouldn't Uh, allow any of their members to sit on that committee. And that committee did such an outstanding job, uh, Rafe, as you said, to the point, Dr. Dabinger, that you made originally, that it lit a fire under the Justice Department. It was almost as if, you know, they handed the Justice Department a case, like, here, guys, here's the book. Here's the playbook. (laughs) You don't have anything to do. Here are the witnesses. We've already deposed them. We already have their admissions. We already have all of their statements. All you have to do uh, is now, you know, put the bow on this package, which you're right, uh, Rafe, uh, this special counsel uh, is really, really going after these cases, Uh, obviously not afraid in this recent motion Trump filed to uh, postpone his case involving you know, misuse of classified documents indefinitely. <laughs> I mean, the special counsel wrote a scathing reply, opposition, again, laying out that there are rules set by our courts, uh, there are laws that everybody must follow. And the nerve of, of Trump to come in and say, uh, because I'm running for president, or because there's a lot of documents, I need this trial to be postponed until basically I die. <laughs> Which is really, <laughs> yeah. like, I, y- y'all it. do this trial, you know, at, at my funeral or something, because <laughs> I, I can't participate in it. But I, I hear what you're saying about them sticking, them being the MAGA crowd sticking with Trump. But John Kasich, uh, D- Dr. Debinga was on this morning. One show I was watching. And he said, give the Republicans time. You know, John Kasich, former governor of Ohio, former presidential candidate himself. He thinks that there is some breaks happening in the Republican base and that this this piling on this, this cumulative effect is going to cause the party to break with Trump. You think Kasich has a point?
2: Uh, no, I don't, to be quite honest. <laughs> when we watched uh, President Biden's interview with, with with Nicole Wallace a few weeks ago, he he talked about how there were about six Republicans who come up to him and talk about all of their problems with Trump, but they're afraid to go public. So I believe that you have the people like the Mitt Romneys of the world, you know, who are always going to speak up and say certain things. But I believe that these, these Republican ba- uh, senators, they're too afraid. To speak up. And you also got folks in the House who are going crazy down there with everything going on and Marjorie Taylor Green and all of these guys. The House is, for the most part, in lockstep with Donald Trump as relates to their leadership and Kevin McCarthy. And so McConnell hasn't spoken up, Lindsey Graham. And so even if there are a couple of senators that do speak up, the main leaders aren't going to speak up and say anything. And so really, at the end of the day, I, I hear what Kasich is saying, but we can't, and we also can't wait for that. And we also have to be mindful of the fact that whether Trump stays the nominee or not, you know, Democrats can't get comfortable in thinking that this is wrapped up because now you got these groups like No Label, you know, looking at Flo and running another candidate, maybe a, a, a mansion and, and, and Logan uh, Hogan ticket or something like that. Logan's uh, former governor of, of Maryland you know, a ticket or something like, we don't know. You got uh, Cornel West and all these other people out there. There's so many opportunities to have parts of the vote siphoned off by different factions that I know there are a lot of people just praying that these indictments keep coming, but he's not going anywhere. You can run and be indicted. And so people cannot let their guard down thinking that he's going to go away with another indictment because his fundraising numbers just keep rising as well.
0: Well, you're right about that. We definitely can't sit on our laurels. We can't rest on our laurels. We have to be aggressive, which is why I started the show talking about that pack that's going to be engaging black voters. So important. And yesterday on the show, I had Ro a congressman from California. He said he thought a Donald Trump, Tim Scott ticket would be a problem for Democrats because he said Tim Scott is uh, disarming, uh, mm-hmm. seemed to be a reasonable, sensible Republican, and obviously an African-American man. Uh, so you're right. There are lots of ways that the Democrats can lose in 2024. Uh, when we come forward, we're going to talk about Kerry Kennedy blasting her father, fo- her brother, uh, the Michigan Attorney General going after those electors in Michigan and what is happening with the image and the legacy of former South African President Nelson Mandela. Stay with us right here on KBLA Talk 1580. I'm back and in this hour we are tracking today's breaking and trending news with my superstar contributors Dr. Raphael Sonenshine. He's the executive director of the John Randolph Haynes and Dora Haynes Foundation, and Dr. Omikango Dabinga. He's a senior professional lecturer at American University and the author of a new book called The Lies They Tell Black People. Uh, Dr. Dabinga, how hurtful and just tragic is it to see Nelson Mandela's legacy being uh, destroyed in some ways? And, And, you know, this headline that he's going from hero to scapegoat as his party, the party that he started, the ANC, is being uh, attacked or not not maybe attacked, maybe called out. Uh, you know, allegations of corruption, ineptitude, and elitism, uh, some experts say, have tarnished the ANC. Uh, what, what are your thoughts about this?
2: This is, I'm just, uh, <laughs> I'm trying to contain myself here on this one. Uh, I, I got, is extremely, frustrating the way that people have come out and condemned uh, Nelson Mandela or are starting to uh, I, I was just in South Africa in, in March, I believe. I've been there nine times. Um, I grew up, you know, my first activist protest, I can remember when I was like seven or something, was working to free Nelson Mandela and carrying signs. So, you know, I'm very active and involved in the movement. And this is not a man who's never made a mistake. And we can definitely criticize policies and all of that. But here's the thing, Ariva: not only has he been dead for 10 years, But he's been out of office for almost 25 years. So for people to condemn him when there's real leadership now and there's been real leadership a decade ago and 15 years ago, put your actions and energy and attention towards towards those leaders now. And yes, there are lots of issues with the ANC. And quite honestly, there are some new areas of, of leadership from other parties that are emerging that I, I find myself looking at and being a little bit uh, more supportive of. That's how it works. I mean, when you look at the the leaders in our civil rights movement, so many of them spent so much time just working to get free they they weren't they you know they weren't perfect they didn't have master plans for everything else after the fact sometimes when you're just focusing on just getting free you may not make the greatest mistake you know the best decisions that may happen down the line after you get freedom. Look, freedom is not an event, it's a process. And so my thing is for all of those people who are out there complaining about uh, a dead man, I read one article said, well, I wouldn't have worked with the white people. I would have sought revenge. And yeah, you would have been shot. So let's just be honest with that, right? That's just <laughs> oh, a
0: little topic help, help, help us out, Dr. Bingo, because many people may not know you know what's the basis of some of this criticism you know you just yeah, they're basically saying
2: they, they're basically saying that you know Nelson Mandela should have went on a policy of revenge revenge politics he should have basically attacked and taken everything uh, away from white people and in the extreme sense kicked them out of the country you know and, and so they're they're upset that they felt like he didn't embrace strong enough policies that would benefit the majority of black people in South Africa because he acquiesced too much to white people to get power. Now, again, there are fair critiques to make about Mandela's policies and what he did. But again, that was his last day in office was 1999. So those guys who are busy complaining about him now, why don't you get out there, focus on running for office? I know people over there who are going to be running for office who are very popular, who are working to do something about it. If the ANC's time is up, then it's time is up. Make way for new leadership, new, younger leadership or whatever. I'm cool with that. But let Mandela rest in peace.
0: That's what I want to ask you. Okay, great point. Mandela's out of office for 25 years, dead for 10 years, how come they're not blaming the leadership of the ANC that has been in power for the last 25 years? Because to the extent Mandela may have compromised too much in the eyes of these individuals, what has the leadership done over the last 25 years?
2: Well, I feel like some of these people who are, you know, there are many people who are speaking up against the ANC, but I think some of these other people, they're afraid. You know, they're, they're afraid of retaliation. They're afraid of, you know, waiting they may get exposed in some way, shape, or form. When you've got some people, elements of leadership that are corrupt, they can do some real things, you know, in public or, or behind people's back, and you don't know what's going on. And so I believe that is a, it, that is the case. I mean, you look at a place like Rwanda, for example. When I visited Rwanda in 2018, they're calling it the darling of Africa and the heart of Africa. But one thing I noticed when I was walking around, that nobody criticized Kagame. Uh, and I was like, wow. And I asked why. And they said, because you will just dis- (laughs) disappear like that's what Rwandans told me and so I feel like there's an element of that but I also feel like there's a lot of youthful energy that's being misdirected towards the past that they never fully understood rather than focusing attention on the present and there are many people in South Africa focused on making change in the present now but those ones who are spending their time condemning Mandela are the ones I take issue with.
0: You want to jump in, Rafe? You have what are you feeling about this? I, I mean, it just saddened me to hear because in the U.S., Nelson Mandela was, is, and continues to be such a you know a iconic figure.
1: Well, I can't improve on what Dr. Dubinga just said, but I would say this: this is not necessarily about Nelson Mandela; it's about the party, mm-hmm. and this goes on throughout the whole world. Now, the party is defending itself by linking itself to the heritage of Nelson Mandela. And then so to attack the party, you end up attacking Nelson Mandela. Longstanding parties that have been dominant always run into deterioration. And when that happens, you know, they try to, like, connect to a previous history that was more popular. This is not an unusual phenomenon, but it's really about the party right now, it seems to me. I also agree that to go back on history and to say he should have been a different person than he was in the time he was in, is awfully harsh. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and I think as somebody who was a freedom fighter and created the beginnings of freedom, it's awfully hard and harsh to go back and say, you could have done this, you could have done that. I mean, he was quite heroic. I mean, I, I think that's Yeah, not, I think not people are,
0: are ignoring the, the time frame in which he yeah. was acting and the circumstances <clears throat> under which he found himself being free from prison and becoming the leader of that country and trying to as you said Dr. Dabinga just uh you know break down the walls of apartheid so yeah, it's a lot easier to criticize those who you know whose actions are, are in the past but I, I'm with both of you let's see what this new young energetic you know activist class what can they do to move african uh, folks in south africa Forward. What can they move? How can they move black people in that country forward? Uh, we'll be watching to see because it's easy to criticize, but harder to take action yourself. Speaking of criticizing Carrie Kennedy, she mm-hmm. is lambasting her brother, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. for his weird comment about COVID-19. And then I don't know, if both of you probably saw this. He was on Donald Trump's shortlist for possible VP. So, I don't know. It's Carrie, right, to try to get her brother to to rein it in because he seems to be making a lot of mistakes uh, if his goal is really to be uh, taken seriously as a presidential candidate. What do you think, Rafe? You know the Kennedy family well. You uh, know the legacy.
1: I think I think this is yet another tragedy for the Kennedy family that's experienced numerous tragedies. They know him. They know that he's a troubled person. They know that they have to hear this stuff and then to hear him taken seriously by pundits and others is actually worse for the family, I think, because then they have to come in and directly attack their family member who they kind of know where he's at. But then the political press needs people. They need new faces. They need people to liven up the race so it's not just Biden and Trump. So they have actual serious discussions about his, quote, ideas. And these ideas are like way off, off the scale. So I refuse to take him seriously as a political leader. that's That's where I'm taking my stand. He's just saying stuff that just makes no sense whatsoever and is very damaging to his own family, let alone the country.
0: Yeah, it's it's really sad. You're right. When you see uh, a family member in crisis, because we'd have to admit Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is in crisis and seemingly has been in crisis for a while. Uh, when we come uh, forward, Dr. Debinga, this Michigan Attorney General announcement should have lots of folks uh, quaking in their boots, wondering if they mm-hmm. might be next and why are so many otherwise successful people willing to put their freedom, reputation, and entire careers on the line for a man like Donald Trump when we come forward? KBLA Talk 1580. We are back and we are tracking today's breaking news. There's been lots of it today. Uh, Dr. Omikanga Dabinga is here. He's the author of a new book called Lies About Black People. And Dr. Raphael Sunshine is uh, with us in this last uh, segment, Dr. Dabinga, why is it that otherwise established, successful people in their some of these people in their sixties and seventies, why would they put their reputation, their freedom, their careers a- at stake uh, or risk them for Donald Trump? So these fake electors in the state of Michigan, so far the state of Michigan, on the same day that we learned that Trump is a target. Uh, for his actions with respect to trying to overturn the 2020 election, the Michigan Attorney General has herself uh, now announced felony charges against 16 Republicans. One of them is a former co-chair of the Michigan Republican Party. She's married to a state rep in Michigan. Uh, Mm -hmm. Another one Mm -hmm. of these individuals is a part of the Republican uh, National uh, Committee. I mean, these are otherwise successful well established <clears throat> people and now <clears throat> they are facing felony charges and their best defense one of the the defendants lawyers said this is political and why are you charging my client instead of charging Donald Trump and the lawyers of Donald lawyer, Donald Trump's lawyers who came to Michigan to you know sell my client on this scheme so we already know it's going to be a whole lot of finger pointing going on. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. You know people, you know what drives people <laughs> to act crazy, I guess. <laughs> what makes these people risk their lives for this man?
2: I mean, not to mention the non-politicians like the my pillow guy who I think is like auctioning auctioning off furniture <laughs> to keep his business afloat. <laughs> yeah. The only the thing I keep coming back to is that I feel like all of these people were so bold in their action because They actually thought they were going to win and be able to get in and do whatever they want. I mean, what would you do if you knew you couldn't lose? If you knew that you were going to, you know, what steps would you go through? And they were... All caught up into it. This isn't about we were, Oh, we were influenced. We were scared. No, they thought they can grab the power as well and be able to do all the things that Donald Trump talked about doing just last week. You know, suspend the constitution, have the Department of Justice, you know, work to their favor. This is what they want. And they got busted. They got caught. And let me also, let me also say that this is what happens when you get all Democrats who run a state from top to bottom, like Michigan. So this is another example of why voting matters. So I'm looking forward to the accountability that's finally going to happen. These guys are going to snitch on levels that make put rappers (laughs) to shame, Um, that's for sure. And so, you know, this is definitely one of those popcorn moments. But yeah, this is definitely about they want, they actually thought they could win and and they're losing. And now they're going to be held accountable. That's what it comes down to, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, rap songs, a lot of content for rappers, a lot of content for comedians, a lot of content for anyone who is a commentator, because this stuff is really crazy, Rafe. I hear you, Dr. Binga. but Rafe, what was the basis for thinking they were going to win? There's never been a time in our history where you could create a list of fake electors and say, mm-hmm. we vote for this person to be the president, despite the fact that this other person has won the votes that qualify for these folks to be the electors. And then they have to vote, you know, consistent with the way voters in that state have. So were they just suspended from reality? Because there's no precedent for this. So it's not like they can say, well, you know, we got away with this in uh, you know, 2010, so let's just do it again. Mm-hmm.
1: I, I think we're going to look back on Donald Trump as kind of a twisted genius in, in a certain way. I mean, it'll be a pleasure to look back um, mm-hmm. and, and have that freedom to do. People are going to be getting tenure based on writing <laughs> research studies about this. But so much of it is that he, he creates a picture for some people that's much more attractive than reality. And he paints it magnificently. He it, It's in it's in all sorts of perspectives, and it's deep, and it has an answer for everything. And one of the answers, as Dr. Dubinga said, is you're going to win, and you're going to do whatever you want. Now, this is different, though, from a lot of political movements, including revolutionary movements. People in those movements expect there will be consequences, uh, that they might fail, and those consequences could be dire. To take us back to Nelson Mandela who basically would take the risk of life imprisonment practically or death. There's, what's really striking is how surprised people are when they're called in and the judge doesn't roll over as they've been promised. Everyone will roll over. And then they say things like, I had a vacation in the Bahamas. Can I go and have the vacation before you know my trial? And the judge looks at them like, what? What is this? So what's really striking about this is the notion of no consequences.
0: You're right. And because I'm thinking about fabulous. civil rights leaders yeah. and risking in their lives. Their they expect to be arrested. Yes. They expect to be, you know, bulldozed by you know police officers. They expect physical harm and they say, I'm willing to risk it all because this is so important.
2: That's right. These that's folks, you're so right, right
0: are scratching their heads saying, what uh, jail like (laughs) indictment and they think by just saying it's political that's become their buzzwords Mm -hmm. that somehow that is going to cause a prosecutor judge or jury to cut them some slack because yeah it's political because you engaged in political Mm. conduct that's (laughs) That's That's
1: why it's so important for trump to keep saying there will not be consequences. I'll win the election. I'll pardon everybody. I mean, there's this constant repetition. Now, at some point, if that fails, maybe that begins to change some of the dynamics. Since the no consequences piece that, again, Dr. DeBinger raised is exactly right. Uh, That's part of the appeal.
0: Yeah. And we're starting to see this Georgia Supreme Court Rejected Trump's effort to quash the investigation. <clears throat> Basically, he wanted to put the, put the kibosh on Fonnie Willis's, the DA in Fulton mm-hmm. County, who's investigating him in the same way we, this Michigan investigation is moving forward. And these Trump appointed Republican, conservative leaning judges, Dr. Dabinga said no, said this investigation, we're not going to meddle in this investigation. And one thing these folks who think they will face no consequences and Donald Trump will pardon them need to know, Donald Trump cannot pardon them for their state
3: indictments.
0: He can't do anything with respect to their sentences. He can't commute a state sentence. So if you are indicted, if you are charged in Michigan Georgia, uh, Arizona, any one of these seven swing states where they were engaged in this fraudulent elector conduct, you will be sitting in a jail cell. You will have your bar license revoked. A lot of these folks are lawyers. Mm-hmm. You will lose jobs. A lot of these folks are losing their jobs and, and they will lose it all. And Donald Trump will not be able to help them. Do you think any of these smart lawyers, Business people, Dr. Dabenga, gave five minutes of thought to that, that, yeah, he may be able to pardon me if the feds come knocking on my door, mm-hmm. but if my state attorney general indicts me, he can't help me.
2: I don't, I don't think so. I don't think they gave any thought to it. I think that they had power in their eyes and they were just... Salivating over it. And for people who think that Donald Trump is going to part of them, I mean, look at, he didn't even pay people's legal fees. I mean, he offered to do that to people who, who went out there and fought for him, didn't do that, didn't show up at the rally. Uh, and and all of these guys who are sitting in jail finally realizing that he sold them out. These politicians should realize at the same time that he would never do anything for them if he come if he was to come back into power. And they need to be mindful because we got this going on in Michigan, and you mentioned Georgia. I mean, finally Willis is not playing. I mean, she's gone after she put teachers in jail, she's going after rappers. Like, she is just in the pursuit of justice, period. And so I feel like Lindsey Graham and all of those guys need to be on notice because now that you see that this upset in the fan, they're going to be dropping like flies waiting to figure out who's going to snitch first because I, I feel like some of these guys are, I feel like most of them are not going to jail for Donald Trump. I think you got this now that the guy who's probably going to go down with him. But most of these guys at some point, they're going to give in because they don't want to go to prison. And I'm glad that it's finally time that they're going to face these consequences.
0: Well, this Michigan lawyer for one of the 16 Uh, who have been charged in Michigan for this fake electoral scheme has said, how come Donald Trump isn't being charged with my client? How come those lawyers haven't been charged? And the response from the uh, Michigan attorney general is the investigation is ongoing, which says to me, like, just wait and see. There may be other shoes that will drop. Uh, This is, again, mind boggling to me, Uh, But maybe these folks don't value their career or their freedom in the way that I value mine. Uh, But uh, we're going to see, obviously, lots more from both uh, Georgia, Michigan, Arizona, and some of these other swing states. Thank you so much. We are out of time. Thank you, uh, Dr. Sonenshine. Always a pleasure to see you. Thank you, Dr. Dabinga again, his book. Make sure you check it out. It's called Lies About Black People Everywhere Books Are Sold. Uh, and stick with us because we're going to be talking about who really benefited from slavery. And it's not just those white plantation owners in the South uh, that you have seen on television or maybe read about in books. It's going to shock you when you hear what my guests have to say in hour two about who the real beneficiaries of slavery are. Uh, so stay with us right here on KBLA Talk 1580. Former President Donald Trump is officially a target in the special counsel's investigation into January 6th. This is the second time that the special counsel has notified the former president that he is likely to face indictment. This time in connection with the criminal investigation into the events leading up to the Capitol attack. Trump calls the letter a targeted witch hunt. And in more Trump legal news, Georgia Supreme Court rejects Trump's effort to quash the investigation by Fulton County District Attorney Bonnie Willis. Uh, with indictment decisions imminent, the Supreme Court of Georgia refused to scuttle Bonnie Willis' investigation into whether the former president and his allies interfered in the 2020 election. Well, the world is sweltering in record breaking heat. Much of the Northern Hemisphere is experiencing withering high temperatures which scientists warn are increasingly likely to continue. An increasingly deep dive among Democrats in Congress about how strongly or even whether to support Israel has reared its head on the eve of a visit by the nation's president to Washington as progressives openly condemn the Jewish state and others toil to reconcile their backing for the country with disdain for its current government. The rift burst into public view over the weekend when Representative Jayapal, a Washington Democrat who leads the Congressional Progressive Caucus, said at a conference that Israel, quote, is a racist state, quote, leading to a swift condemnation from House Democratic leaders that prompted her to walk back the comment. Former South African President Nelson Mandela goes from hero to scapegoat as South Africa struggles. Mr. Mandela's image, which the ANC has plastered across the country, has for some shifted that of hero to scapegoat. Now, 10 years after his death, attitudes are starting to change. The party Mr. Mandela led after his release from prison, the African National Congress, is in serious danger of losing its outright majority for the first time since he became president in 1994, in the first re election after the fall of apartheid. Some blame the ANC of corruption, ineptitude, and elitism, which they say have tarnished the party's reputation. On Friday, Iowa's Republican governor signed a strict abortion ban into law, and for three days, most abortions in Iowa were illegal past six weeks of pregnancy. Until Monday afternoon, when a district court judge in Polk County said that the new ban would be suspended while the larger legal case against it moved forward. Carrie Kennedy, a sister of Democratic presidential campaign Robert F. Kennedy Jr., lambasted her brother in a brief statement yesterday after a report quoted him as saying that COVID 19 was, quote, targeted to attack Caucasians and Black people, end of quote and that Jewish people were somehow most immune. Well, the Michigan attorney general announced felony charges this afternoon against 16 people in a case involving Trump supporters attempt to overturn the 2020 election results in Michigan by convening a false slate of electoral college electors. Each of the 16 defendants has been charged with eight felony counts, including forgery and conspiracy to commit forgery, for allegedly signing documents attesting falsely that they were Michigan's duly elected and qualified electors for president and vice president. You are listening and watching Ariva Martin in real time. And I'm your host, Ariva Martin. This is your one-stop destination for today's Trinity News expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. We are in hour two of Ariba Martin in real time, and this is the hour where we dig deeper, where we go behind the headlines and bring you the stories that people are talking about and the experts and sometimes everyday people who really know what's happening with regards to those stories. Today, we're talking about who really benefited from slavery and free slave labor in the United States. So we've all seen the movies, we've read articles, we've seen books, and we probably have been told narratives about white slave and plantation owners, mostly in the South. And many of us have been led to believe that those plantation owners were the exclusive beneficiaries of slavery. And that somehow folks in the North, uh, businesses, institutions, religious organizations in the North were somehow unconnected, unrelated to the the slave trade and the massive amount of revenue that it created. Well, my guests today are going to debunk those myths, Uh, both have written articles and books about the true. Beneficiaries of the US slave trade. And some of their findings are going to shock you and, in some cases, make you lose your religion Uh, when you think about who are the true beneficiaries of slavery and what those beneficiaries uh, have or have not done to compensate not only the enslaved, but the descendants of slaves. This is a part of the continuing dialogue and conversation we're having about reparations. Uh, We've been talking uh, for the last couple of months about reparations efforts around this country, uh, particularly those that I'm involved in, in Palm Springs, California, uh, those efforts that are taking place in the state of California and others, even in places like St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, People all over this country are starting to look at the ways in which property and land and free labor uh, was stolen from Black people, and and really asking the question, how do we make uh, the descendants of slaves whole? How do we address uh, the pervasive racism uh, that has resulted in uh, the taking, the unlawful, the unjustified taking of Black land and property? Uh, When we come forward, two of the nation's leading experts on race and capitalism uh, and the taking of property, particularly uh, the use of slave labor to fund some of your probably favorite and most, most cherished institutions in this country. Stay with us right here on KBLA Talk 1580. You are listening and watching Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. This is hour two of the show, uh, and this is the hour where we dig deep on stories that folks are talking about. Uh, We all recall that after George Floyd's murder in May of 2020, America started having a reckoning with its founding narrative, its origin story, uh, and really the role that race has played in terms of how Folks are are situated in this country. Specifically, how we are situated with respect to economics. A big bright spotlight was shined on uh, the gross disparities in terms of wealth between black uh, folks in this country and and white folks, and the ever growing wealth gap. And what some of the causes of that wealth gap are. And you can't have that conversation about the wealth gap or about America's founding narrative or its origin story without talking about slavery. Uh, And so today we're talking about the beneficiaries of the U.S. slave trade. And joining me in this hour is New York University professor Rachel Swarns. She's also the author of a new book called The 272, The Families Who Were Enslaved and Sold to Build the American Catholic Church. Also in this hour, a history of slavery, capitalism, and African-American inequality professor at Arizona State University, uh, Calvin Shimmerhorn is here. He is the author of four books on the history of slavery in the U.S., including Unrequited Toil, A History of United States Slavery. Uh, welcome to both of you, Professor Swarns and Professor Shimmerhorn. Uh, I I guess I I wanted to start the show by talking about the narrative that most people have been fed, which is that the U.S. slave trade benefited primarily the white plantation owners and slave owners who were in the South. And, And, you know, we have all been kind of misled into believing that there weren't other beneficiaries of slavery. Both of you in your research and the articles and books that you have written uh, debunked that myth. And for you, Professor Sworns, your book really uh, brings home the point about the Catholic Church and universities, private universities being, uh, you know, Two of the biggest categories of beneficiaries of, of slaveries. Uh, talk to us about 272, the families who were enslaved and sold to build the American Catholic Church. Uh, why did you write the book? And what what was one of the most shocking revelations you found in your research for the book?
4: Well, I stumbled across um this um this history. It was not something that I was familiar with. And I I always like to say the best way for me to introduce people um, to it is to, to tell you a little bit about who the 272 were. And to do that, I need to take you back, all of our listeners tonight, take you back to November of 1838, to the docks near in Alexandria, Virginia, not far from where the nation's capital is now. And if you had been there on the docks that day, you would have seen them. Scores of people being loaded onto a ship, forcibly loaded. There were elderly people, husbands and wives, um, children, babies. These were African-Americans who were being sold and shipped down South, far from the people they loved and the world that they knew. And they had been enslaved and sold by some of the nation's most prominent Catholic priests who happened at the time to be among the the largest slaveholders in Maryland. And when tough times came, these priests did what a lot of people did, which was to sell off their assets. And in this instance, those assets were human property, 272 men, women, and children. And they sold these folks because they were trying to save their biggest mission project, uh, which happened to be the nation's first institution, Catholic institution of higher learning, the college we now know as Georgetown University. And I've got to say, this was um, astounding to me. Um, you know, I consider myself a fairly educated person. Um, this was not news to historians, as you'll hear. Um, but many of us think about, I certainly did, I happen to be Catholic myself, many of us think about the Catholic Church as a northern institution, right, as, as, as an immigrant church. Um, but uh, slavery was foundational, to the emergence of, of the church. And I was stunned that Catholic priests had owned and sold people. And I wanted to know more about that. And I wanted to know more about those families. And so in the book, you actually
0: follow, uh, a family through, uh, I'm reading here, two centuries of indentured servitude and enslavement. Uh, tell us a little
4: about that family. Right. You know, a lot of people, I think, think about um, when we think about slavery, we think about something long, long ago, not connected to us and these faceless, nameless people. And I wanted to uh, make this real for people. And so I focused on one family, um, starting with um, the matriarch, a woman by the name of Anne Joyce, who arrives in Maryland in the 1600s, a black woman who was an indentured servant. Her contract is burned, she's forced into slavery, she's lost everything that she has, except for her story. And she passes her story on um, to her children and grandchildren, Um, generation to generation. We, our liberty was stolen, we should have been free people. And her descendants resist. Um, Some descendants, two descendants kill an overseer and are executed. Some of her descendants take the Catholic priests to court. They sue them to try to get their liberty. Um, Some are successful, but some are not. And one descendant by the name of Harry Mahoney saves the church's wealth in the War of 1812 and garners a a promise from the priest that his family will never be sold. But that promise is broken in 1838 with that mass sale of the 272.
0: Wow, are you were you able to find and talk to any of the descendants of the Mahoney family?
4: Yes, um, and that's one of the things that's been most important to me in my work is to show not only the history um, and how slavery fueled the growth of many of our contemporary institutions, but how we live with this history, how we grapple with it as as families and as institutions. And um, I tell the story of two contemporary descendants um, who learn of this history um, after I wrote a story for the New York Times in 2016. Um, they become part of a movement to press Georgetown and the Jesuits to address and atone for this history. And one of those descendants happened to be an employee of Georgetown at the time and still is. <laughs> wow.
0: So, so Dr. Shimmer-Horn, uh Dr. Swan says that this was shocking to her. She learned this history. Uh, she said historians have known it, and that would be you. You're a historian. You've studied this uh, throughout your career. Help us understand, you know, put this in context for us. How unique, if at all, is the story that uh, Dr. Sworn tells about the Catholic Church in Georgetown?
3: Well, I think uh, Professor Swarns's research has amplified something that uh, historians have known a little bit about, um, but haven't known that much about. And these revelations have come very recently. So the Georgetown revelation is, what, less than 10 years old. Um, are, and the, the revelation about Johns Hopkins, the, the supposed abolitionist who uh, enslaved at least four people in his own household, that was just uh, three years ago. And so historians really haven't done the, the the hard work of getting those receipts for that history, uh, the way that we're supposed to. I think the the person that really broke this was uh, Professor Steve, um, sorry, Craig Stephen Wilder. Um, With a book, Ebony and Ivy, that went in and looked at the connections between slavery and universities. And in 2006, Brown University um, came out with a report on its history, um, saying that that institution, that Ivy League school was heavily indebted for its existence to the proceeds from the transatlantic slave trade. Um, And so each time we put a microscope on this situation, we see more and more. So um, when Harvard, um, faculty at Harvard looked into that institution's history, they found that Harvard had owned enslaved people and enslaved people had worked there. Um, There's a book coming out um, early next year by Yale historian, David Blight, exposing Yale's long and deep association with American slavery. But I wanna take this in slightly, just a slightly different direction. And that is that what do institutions of higher education, what do they have to do with this institution and how do they, how do they relate to it? If We go back into the, the early part of the, the 19th century when um, Georgetown is, is doing the things that Professor Swarns is, is describing. Um, they're not alone. Many other institutions now, especially in the South. Um, like the University of Virginia, the University of Mississippi owned and used enslaved people, um, but the, this this wasn't limited to the South, uh, or nor was it limited to just owning enslaved people. If you look at the production of knowledge, what were what were what were the the uh, institutions of higher education saying about race. We can go up to Harvard, look at Louis Agassiz, uh founder of the American School of Ethnology, uh, ethnography rather, who put forth a, a, a theory of polygenesis, that black people came, were separately created than white people. And so here's a Harvard professor that is giving a scientific basis for racism. And he certainly wasn't alone. Um, We think of the sort of the culture wars um, description of higher education today, which is a bunch of liberal elites kind of controlling the narrative around um, race and culture. That absolutely wasn't the case in the 19th century. Most U.S. institutions of higher education were reinforcing and perpetuating the racial status
2: quo.
0: Wow. Yeah, thank you for that history and and mentioning Harvard, which I'm, I'm an alumni of Harvard, Uh, How many do you know, Professor Swarns, how many of these private and some public institutions, uh, you know, who have a similar history to the history that, you know, you've talked about with respect to Georgetown? uh, We now know with respect to Brown
4: University uh, and others. Do we have any sense about the numbers? You know, there is actually an organization now, a consortium, as you might call it of, of universities that are studying this history and there' are at least 90 of them, I believe um, that have um, you know, they've banded together um, and they are committed to you know studying and trying to address um, their institutions' roots in slavery. Um, and you know it's I, I, I want to talk about the church again for a second just so people understand the scale. Um, you know, priests who enslaved people um, and sold people established um, the first arch, the nation's first archdiocese, uh, built the first nation's first cathedral, um, the first Catholic institution of higher learning, Georgetown, as we know, as I mentioned, um, priests who operated plantation and sold people established the first Catholic seminary. So it's foundational, but it's, it's important to know not just not just Georgetown, not just universities, not just the Catholic Church, um, not just religious organizations. We're talking about banks. We're talking about, um, uh, you know, uh, insurance companies. Um, you know, this was foundational to the economy. So as as Professor Schumerhorn says, if you look closely, you'll find it. Um, and and the truth is that we haven't, as a society, wanted to look very closely, um, and and that's been part of the problem.
0: And I was going to ask you, Professor Schimmerhorn, how come there hasn't been more research uh, by historians, black or white, uh, on the relationship of these prominent institutions to slavery?
3: Well, I think it's uh, in part because of the of what you started with. We have a certain narrative. Uh, about the founding. We have a certain narrative about who we are as a people. And uh, that narrative seems to treat freedom and slavery like oil and water, that once you have a a nation founded on the principles of liberty, that somehow slavery is is inimical to that, is antithetical. But as we dig deeper, we see that um, freedom and slavery were more like built on one another rather than like oil and water. And what I mean by that is that uh, the, in order for there to be like this real consciousness of freedom in the United States, um, a lot of the founders and a lot of the people who maintain that, that government uh, were enslavers and they knew very intimately uh, what for the value of, value of freedom because they deprived uh, others of it. And then uh, if we want to go and dig deeper, I think, as Professor Swarons has indicated, um, if you look at the the way the economics works, this is kind of common sense to us today. If you go into a store and make a purchase, yes, it seems to be a local event. If it happens in Los Angeles or where I'm sitting in Tempe, Arizona, Um, or if we look at slavery, oh, maybe that's something that happened uh, on a plantation in the South. But if we use our credit card, that links that transaction to a bank. And so by the same token, um, enslavers needed a lot of credit. They needed a lot of support. They needed a lot of infrastructure. So something that seems localized in the South that happens in a field is actually linked to a financial center. In New York or Liverpool or wherever the the kind of the that that financial chain leads, or wherever that supply chain leads, mm-hmm. and so the more we've looked, the more we've discovered that um, the financial transactions that seem to be localized in the South lead back. To those financial centers and to shippers and to manufacturers of tools and clothing and to people who are buying the bonds that are represented right. by the banks that are in this. Hold
0: building. that thought, Professor. When we come forward, yeah. I want to talk about now that we have all this knowledge, particularly around these university churches and other institutions, what are they going to do about it? Uh, stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. We are back. And in this hour, we're talking about the true beneficiaries of the U.S. chattel slave trade. Uh, And it may be shocking to hear that it's not just white plantation owners in the South that benefited, benefited from slavery, but it also included big institutions like universities, private and public, and some churches like the Catholic Church. Uh, I have experts joining me in this hour. Professor Rachel Swarns, who is the author of a new book called The 272 The Families Who Were Enslaved and Sold to Build the American Catholic Church. And Professor Calvin Schimmerhorn is here. He's uh, author of four books, included, including Unrequited Toil, A History of United States Slavery. Uh, so, Professor Swarns, the Catholic Church has been exposed. Georgetown has been exposed. I know there's been an effort by some activists to get Georgetown to uh, pay reparations, make amends uh, for its use of slave labor to build that university. But, but where are we? Where are we with the Catholic Church and Georgetown in terms of, of their willingness uh, to make descendants of these slave families whole?
4: Very good question. Um, Georgetown, um, even before uh, my first article on this ran in um, April of 2016, Georgetown had established a, a working group to look into its history and to try to address it. Um, and in um, September of 2016, uh, the university took some of the first steps um, offering uh, preference in admissions uh, to descendants of people who were enslaved um, and people who were sold, effectively legacy status for those people. Um, They formally changed the names of some buildings um, uh, and more recently um, created a fund, uh, what they call a reconciliation fund, uh, where they are committed to raising $400,000 a year. To fund projects that benefit descendants and descendant communities, uh, the first two hundred thousand um, dollars was allocated um, toward projects just this s- semester. Um, as for the Jesuits, um, they partnered with uh, descendant organization, uh, descendant leaders. Uh, to create a foundation and committed to raising a hundred million dollars um, toward, um, again, racial reconciliation projects and projects to benefit descendants. the um, It was a landmark uh, move by the Catholic church, the largest effort by the Catholic church to address its history um, of slaveholding in the United States. But, um, you know, fundraising has, been slower um, than expected. And and in both situations, both with Georgetown and with the Catholic Church, with the Jesuits, um, descendants um, who now number uh, at least 6,000 have had mixed feelings about this, you know, with some saying, you know, okay, good first steps, but um, wanting more.
0: Hey, let me, when you say fundraising has stalled, who did the Catholic church expect to raise this money from?
4: Well, good question. Um, and I, sh- I shouldn't say stalled. It's been slower than expected. Um, you know, they have been actually going around to Catholic um, institutions, um, talking to, um, you know, schools and alums of, of you know, high schools, colleges, um, trying to raise money. Um, some um, descendants are kind of offended by even the fundraising notion because they feel like the Catholic Church should just outright, you know, allocate these funds. Um, but you know, these are the efforts that are in place, and um, just just recently. Um, they've uh, this foundation that I mentioned, uh, which they established in partnership with with some descendants, has um, is going to be working to establish um, scholarships to, to historically black colleges and universities, too, for descendants. Um, so they are taking steps. Um, I should say that these are, as I mentioned, with the Catholic Church and with Georgetown, too. I mean, they are um notable um Georgetown was among the first major universities to take such a step in terms of offering legacy status um to folks um, and as i mentioned the the church's um the Jesuits' decision was also a landmark but again um even so um some descendants are saying more should be done
0: yeah i know in the case uh dr Schimmerhorn with respect to harvard i i was pretty disappointed when i learned that uh, Harvard's efforts. They were going to put aside a hundred million dollars. There were going to be some projects uh, done. You know, they were going to also change some names of, of buildings. Uh, help us understand what real, uh, you know, recompense would look like, because it just seems like these multi-billion dollar institutions like Georgetown, like mm-hmm. Harvard, you know, $100 million to them is a drop in the bucket. And yes, i that's why I asked you, uh, Professor uh, Swarns, who is the Catholic Church expecting to raise this money from? Like, So you said schools and other institutions. So they're going to, you know, my kids' Catholic school asking us to give money that's already underfunded. So that seems a little ridiculous to me. Uh, what am I missing here, Professor Shimmerhorn?
3: Uh, I don't think you're missing anything. It's this reluctance to grapple with the realities of historical injustice, and also to do that historical accounting. Uh, if we go back and think about how the the kind of how this works, if um, my you know triple great grandparent um, profited off this system, and I have inherited a portion of that, I've materially benefited from that. By the same token, if my triple X grandparent was enslaved and was essentially robbed of the fruits of their labor um, those debts are still on the books on the moral books and so uh, the the efforts to kind of you know take that a moral historical accounting and do something with it um, often gets kind of put into symbolic forms like let's rename a building let's can't let's let's rename a college or something like that and so uh you've got you know Institutions like the Virginia Theological Seminary that um, that d- created a 1.7 million dollar fund to fund scholarships for um, dis- um, relatives of descendants of people that enslaved and and others and the- Princeton Theological Seminary. Um, came up with 27 million dollars for something similar. Um, This is, okay, that's institutional and that's kind of focused on the people who are descended from those who were enslaved or or, um, uh, connected to those people. Um, The Virginia House of Representatives, this is interesting, in 2021 passed a bill um, that covered five uh, public universities in Virginia um, that would give scholarships to, and I don't want to say give, that would award scholarships um, to the descendants or their communities of those five Virginia, public Virginia institutions that um, were involved in slavery. Now that didn't become law because it died in in the Virginia House. I'm sorry, the Virginia Senate. Um, But I think um, what would be more pertinent are some of the suggestions put forth by scholars like William A. uh, Sandy Darity, Uh, who suggests loan forgiveness for African-American students. Uh, And that's not just based on kind of reaching, you know, for just a moral argument. Uh, We look at uh, African-American students carry a a higher proportional debt load or higher, in many cases, higher absolute debt load uh, than white and Latino students. And so, if we want to get serious about that—that uh, that moral accounting—we actually have to do something, and that should be public-funded. That should be a debt that's not just assumed by a particular institution or church, um, but uh, more broadly shared as we share in that history.
0: Yeah, when we come forward, I want to talk about resistance because uh, I mentioned the reparations actions that are happening around the country. Uh, California, it's thousand-page reparations report, uh, but consistently when the the question of reparations is polled; uh, it polls really, really low. Uh, lots of opposition to the concept of repair, restorative justice, or making restitution uh, to descendants of slaves, and, and it's, it's puzzling to me when we have all of these receipts. And so I want to talk about some of the arguments we hear from those who oppose making any kind of restitution for folks who are the descendants of slaves uh, when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. So, Professor Shimmerhorn, help us understand why the polling on any kind of reparations related to slavery or or the enslavement of African-Americans in this country, why does it poll so low and why does there seem to be so much opposition against any kind of uh, restitution for descendants of slaves?
3: I think most white Americans don't want to confront this history, and I think that's it's part willful, you know, willful ignorance, if you like, um, but also uh, profound misunderstanding. Again, we have these narratives of not only the founding but the the general arc of American history, and that seems to um, exonerate uh, the, the the sort of the present generation for. For past injustices, and so we think, oh, because there was emancipation, well, that kind of wipes the 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 debt off the books. You can you can listen to Abraham Lincoln's uh, second inaugural speech. That if the wealth piled up by 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and every drop of blood drawn by the lash will be repaid by another drawn by the sword. There it is. He's saying, oh, reparations is done. This is not true. And this is not something that we have been fronted that we have confronted as a nation. Uh, the way that say Germany has confronted its you know Nazi past, we have not been we have not made ourselves confront that. There's also a profound misunderstanding and again, kind of a willful ignorance when you talk about something like the racial wealth gap. Uh, there was a study done in 2019 um, that polled white Americans. And the results were astounding. Um, most of those polled, believe that the racial gap, wealth gap was 10 to nine. That is for every $10 white American family, the typical white American family had, African-American families had $9 when actually it was 10 to one. Uh, and so we have to confront that uh, that th- those misunderstandings. And we also have to reframe the narrative as well. It's not about um, saying, "Well, I was my ancestors weren't here, white ancestors weren't here in the 1840s, and therefore I'm not responsible." Um, because I think we've as well established that the the the, the wages of whiteness um, is privilege, is is remuneration, it's wealth, it's income, and to the extent that we just surrender and say, "Oh, this is impossible," um, then we've kind of we've given up the project. So we have to to Reiterate this history, and we have to kind of make these stories tangible and palpable in the way that Professor Swarns has done with the 272.
0: Yeah. And so, what kind of opposition have you received, if any, Professor Swarns, and how do you address what uh, Professor Shimmerhorn is saying? I'm involved in a case uh, that I'll call reparations like in Palm Springs, California. And what I often hear from some of those that are opposing the the matter is, you know, we didn't do it, that was long ago. Uh, The people who really suffered are dead. So why should you, the descendant, uh, be benefited because you didn't suffer the harm? Uh, How do you respond to those kinds of uh, responses?
4: Um, They're very, very typical, unfortunately. Um, I would say that the good news is that we're in a moment where um, institutions, um, municipalities, right, um, are all around the country, you know, taking a different tack, saying, no, we need to look at our history. We need to address this history of slavery. Um, There's a lot of experimentation that's going on. Um, and this is happening, though, of course, at the same time that history has become a battleground. Right? You have um, states and, and um, politicians uh, around the country uh, banning books um, and 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 resisting efforts um, to teach um, on um, some of these subjects. PEN America put out a um, uh, a study, a, a report, looking at books that were banned just in the first half of the 2022-2023 school year and, and said there were more than 800 books, um, uh, individual titles banned, and about a third of those uh, were books about race um, and racism. And so we are still confronting a situation um, where folks are reluctant to address this history. I I would say though that, you know, these descendants um, give me some hope in that they are, you know, making themselves visible. Um, And um, certainly, um, you know, the stories of uh, these people who um, were enslaved and sold um, to build the church are are coming out. Um, You know, my book is a part of that. And I think that people are trying to make it known and, and make it clear.
0: Well, I, yes and no. I guess I, I would say I agree and disagree because what we're seeing, what I'm seeing, is, is this is breaking down, Professor Shimmerhorn, along political lines. So you have a blue state like California, where a Democratic legislature was, you know, had the guts to enact legislation to create a reparations task force to study. California's role, even though we were not a slave state, but obviously the black folks in California have suffered because of, you know, Jim Crow type policies and other discriminatory policies. And then you have the uh, legislative body and elected officials in Tulsa, Oklahoma, who are trying to even rewrite the Tulsa race massacre and say it wasn't about race. I mean, literally, the Superintendent of Education in Tulsa uh you know has this is trying to rewrite that entire narrative, and you have uh representatives in states like Texas who are trying to pass laws that would punish municipalities in the state of Texas that even you know enter into any kind of agreements with descendants of slaves to pay reparations. So this issue of restitution, reparations you know, grappling with America's origin story now is a part of the culture war. So where does that leave us?
3: The, yeah, the political situation is bleak, is bleak, but uh, <laughs> these measures are actually um, admissions of weakness. If you use concentrated political power to silence people rather than to give a counter argument or try and present the, you know, try and present the argument with evidence uh, then you're almost conceding uh the argument and i think if we go back to to the events that started our conversation um in tw- you know with the, the 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 consciousness raising around the murder of george floyd then we can see that how this is working through the political system i hope that we can keep focused on the evidence you cannot you, you cannot even pick up a a a newspaper from 20 from 1921 in Tulsa and not see what that uh, massacre was about. Um you can't you, you can't even get, you know, past the first few paragraphs of some of the eyewitness accounts without knowing that. And so the only way that you can make, you know, you can square the circle of that event is by forcing silence. And I hope that is not going to work.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh are more historians, we also started this conversation by saying a lot of this history as it relates to churches and universities and big institutions, whether they're banks, insurance companies, et cetera, a lot of that history had not been unearthed. Do you see there being a movement uh, amongst historians to do more of this research, to make more of these findings available?
3: I certainly do. Uh, and I've been encouraged. I've been inspired by Professor Swarns's research uh, a book that I'm writing um, is the last chapter is an interview with a descendant of the 272, um, not just to talk about her ancestors, but the present day and her experience growing up in rural Louisiana and facing the discrimination and overcoming, you know, as much as she can and her family ha- and the history of this. And so, and I see this in the profession as well. But by the same token, um, I do see that the, the, you know, the frontline educators, the the grade school, the, the, the grade school teachers are very hesitant um, to try and push against a, a, a you know, an atmosphere of, of intimidation.
0: Yeah, well, I want to just one thank both of you for the history, the the research, the writings, the books, all that you've done to contribute to this narrative, to help change this false narrative, uh, and to really help advance uh, the the issues and and to provide the kinds of, uh, you know, evidence-based research that's needed to establish what America's uh, real history with slavery is and who the real beneficiaries were. Again, it's Professor Rachel Swarns. Her book is called The 272 the families who were enslaved and sold to build the American Catholic Church. And thank you again, Professor Calvin Shimmerhorn, uh, who has four books, sounds like a fifth coming out. Uh, one of his books is Unrequited Toil, A History of United States Slavery. Again, thanks to both of you for joining me. Uh, you can follow me on all social media platforms at Ariva Martin.